Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium. Episode 276, Pax, War and Peace in Rome's Golden Age, with Tom Holland. I imagine for many of you, Tom Holland requires no introduction, but just in case, he is a London-based historian who has now written three books covering Roman history. He's also written books about the first millennium, the Greco-Persian War, as well as two particularly groundbreaking books about religion. The first, In the Shadow of the Sword, was the subject of an interview on this podcast back in 2014, when we were covering the origins of Islam. Recently, he wrote a book called Dominion, where he charted the influence of Christianity from its capture of the Romans all the way to modern times. If that sounds at all dry, believe me, it is the opposite. It's an exhilarating argument that essentially beginning with the Crusades, Western Christianity set itself on the path towards the Enlightenment, science, atheism, and perhaps even woke. Tom Holland is such a fascinating writer. He has the skill I so admire in the best historians I've read of taking you back into the mindset of earlier people, stripping away or perhaps putting back on layers of meaning which we've missed out on. His first Romans-only book, Rubicon, covered the fall of the Republic. His second, Dynasty, took the story from Julius Caesar's death to that of Nero. And his latest book, Pax, takes us up to the death of Hadrian. I imagine that, like me, you all know the story of this period pretty well, it's Tom's great skill to tell the story in a way that brings out insights which you didn't realise were there to be drawn out, and that's what I talked to him about in today's interview. Tom's books are available everywhere good books are sold, but if you'd like to listen to one, then why not try Audible? Audible's massive collection of books and podcasts probably needs no introduction either, but you could listen to Pax for free if you sign up at audibletrial.com forward slash Byzantium. In the past, Tom has delegated the reading of these books to voice actors, but for Pax, he does the talking himself. And I know that will be a selling point to those of you who are now hooked on Tom's podcast, The Rest is History. I'll repeat that audible offer at the end of the show, but for now, here's the interview. Tom Holland, welcome back to the History of Byzantium. Thank you very much for having me back. Thank you. It's a real honour to have you here, since you are now the busiest man in history and <laughs> podcasting. We are incredibly grateful for your time. We last spoke in 2014, when I was covering the origins of Islam, and since then you've written Dynasty, Rise and Fall of the House of Caesar, covering Caesar's death to Nero's death, and now you've written Pax, War and Peace in Rome's Golden Age, taking us from Nero's death to that of Hadrian in 138 AD, and that's obviously what we'll be talking about today. But I wanted to start by asking about the book you wrote in between those two, Dominion, The Making of the Western Mind, or perhaps more revealingly the American subtitle, How the Christian Revolution Remade the World. 
I can't recommend Dominion highly enough to those listening. It's one of the most mind-blowing history books I've ever read. Um, Do you know, I'm loving this already. <laughs> this is going so well. <laughs> I mean, we could, you know, I could just talk about that for an hour, but... Just keep on with the phrase. <laughs> one of the points you made in that book is that people, particularly in the West today, are so saturated in Christian ideas that it's very hard to fathom how different the moral universe of people in the pre-Christian past was. And you begin, Pax, by saying the Romans of that period were compellingly different to us. So am I right in seeing the influence of dominion on how you approached this period of Roman history? Yeah, so, so um, the, uh, the, the period that I'm covering, obviously Christians are there. But as I say in the introduction, they are like tiny shrews scampering around a Mesozoic ecosystem. And in the long run, the mammals will inherit the earth. But at the moment, I'm interested in the dinosaurs. <laughs> well, I, I wanted to get into the, how do you approach understanding a pre-Christian people, or maybe I should say a pre-secular people, because I think we really struggle to understand how the divine influenced people because we've created this separation from it so i think that um and this is a conclusion that i've come to over many many years but it's one that's always nagged at me and it now pretty much obsesses me that there is a flaw with the methodology of academic scholarship in the 21st century i mean it achieves so much we couldn't look at the past without it and yet there are certain costs and one of the problems is that in its fundamentals, it's very, very materialist. And the past was not a materialist world. People uh, did not have materialist attitudes. People believed that the world was full of gods, that the interface of, of the, the supernatural and the natural was so profound that it barely made any sense to distinguish them. And I think that that is true say of um the christian centuries of the middle ages and of late antiquity but at least we are you know we are very much the heirs of of that way of thinking but to, to go back to go back to a world where you not only have to smear away the kind of the materialist assumptions but you also have to smear away the christian presumptions is really difficult because the na it's the nature of assumptions that you tend not to recognize that you have them um i, I I'm sure lots of lots of people who write about antiquity, and I was certainly one of them. And this was kind of focused for me by the book that you mentioned at the, the start of this, Shadow of the Sword. I felt that I was, in writing that, that I was being objective and neutral uh, in looking at the various ways that uh, Jews and Zoroastrians and Christians and Muslims understood the dimension of the supernatural. But of course, I wasn't at all. And specifically with Islam, the um, the assumption I brought to looking at the life of Muhammad and the historicity of the Quran and the origins of the Quran were um, were deeply materialist. So I wasn't being neutral at all. Uh, it's perfectly possible to explain the origins of Islam as Muslims have always done, as an intrusion of the divine into the fabric of of, of the mortal and the earthly. But I wasn't going to do that. But that doesn't make me neutral. Hmm. So with the Romans, you have to try and come to terms with their understanding well, you have to get of the rid divine. of them you have to get rid of your material assumptions and you have mm. to get rid of your christian assumptions mm. and both of them are so 
we are so marinated in them that it's, I think, very difficult to do that. Mm. You have to make a conscious effort, I think. Well, let's talk about this unnervingly uh, different culture um, with an example that was quite unfamiliar to me. I had forgotten this from that earlier period of Roman history, so I suspect some listeners will will too, um, which is the tale of of Sporus. Mm. Could you remind the listeners of this? Because I think this is probably... The most unnerving story from the book. So if any of your listeners have watched Succession, um, they may have picked up on this story because uh, Tom Wamsgams is always citing it to cousin Greg. And I can claim personal responsibility for that. because I was the <laughs> Julio-Claudian advisor. Uh, I went in and talked to the writers before they began working on the scripts oh, for Succession. Fantastic. So uh, very proud of that. Um, it is a terrible story. And to be fair, it was seen as a, a pretty terrible story um, by, by the Romans themselves. It was seen as a marker of Nero's depravity. Because, of course, whenever there's some shocking story, you can be sure that Nero isn't far away from it. <laughs> so the sto- so Nero's, the great love of Nero's life was a woman called Papaya Sabina, who had amber-coloured hair, had her own cosmetics range. Um, was, she was the one who bathed in ass's milk, not Cleopatra. Um, long before Pete Townsend, she said, I hope I die before I get old. So she was very, she she was unbelievably sophisticated. Nero adored her. Um, the story, this, the gossip is that uh, Nero comes home from the races one day. His Papaya is heavily pregnant with Nero's son, maybe son, maybe daughter, we don't know. But Nero, I think, assumed it was a son. Uh, she snaps at him. He kicks her in the stomach and she dies and the baby dies as well. We have no way of knowing if that story is true. I personally, I doubt it. It's a commentary on how the Romans saw Nero. Um, But certainly there's no doubting the titanic scale of Nero's grief. And he gives Papera a sensational send-off, full funeral in the forum. She's mummified, uh, laid to rest in the mausoleum of Augustus. The full works, Nero incinerates a a vast quantity of incense in her honour. and he goes on to marry another woman who's rather like Papaya, kind of aristocratic, sophisticated, smart, clearly Nero's type. But the story goes that Nero misses uh, the physicality of someone who looks like Papaya. And so he sends scouts out across the empire looking for someone and the scouts duly find someone. The, the twist is that this person is not a, a female, but a male, very young boy. Uh, he's castrated. Nero christens him. Doesn't christen him, obviously not, because he's not Christian. <laughs> there you see the importation of Christian prejudices. Mm. Uh, calls him Sporus, which is a grim Neronian joke, because Sporus in Greek is spunk. And, of course, Sporus no longer has any spunk. Um, but principally, this poor boy, girl, is called Papaya, because from this point on, he, she is treated as being Papaya. Wears the you know hair cosmetics dress everything to look like Papaya and in due course when Nero kills himself Papaya Sporus is there and does the mourning over his body as a a bereaved wife should uh, gets picked up as a trophy of war by the commander of the Praetorians who's betrayed Nero Uh, he gets over ambitious um, gets killed and Papaya 
Sporus gets picked up by um, Otho, who had actually been married to the original Poppea before Nero kind of appropriated um, her. So for, for Otho, it must have been very odd, you know, suddenly sleeping with someone who looks like his dead wife. Um, Otho, of course, then succumbs in uh, his, his legions are defeated. He commits suicide rather nobly rather than carry on a civil war. Um, and so Sporus becomes the property of Vitellius, the pie-loving <laughs> commander of the German legions, who um, becomes the third of the three emperors in the year of the four emperors. Um, but Vitellius thinks that uh, by this point, Sporus is clearly soiled goods, doesn't want him, her. Uh, so decides that he will um, show the Roman people what a great guy he is by staging an incredible entertainment, which involves dressing uh, Sporus up as uh, Proserpina um, and dressing up a load of, ga- of gladiators as um, uh, Pluto and having Sporus gang raped to death in the arena. And at this point, unsurprisingly, the poor boy kills himself. And the thing I think that is most startling about that is that Vitellius thought this was a way to show what a great guy he was. I mean, there's a chasm of difference from us, from that. Nero, what Nero is doing by creating this simulacrum of a woman to the degree that he offers large amounts of money to doctors who could implant a womb in Sporus's body is that he is pushing to the limits a sexual trend among the Roman elite and um, doing pushing it to excess, as, as Nero does with almost everything. Because the great craze among the Roman elite is for boys who look like girls. And delicati, they're called, pretty boys. And, you know, their hair is caferred and teased and crimped and permed and they wear cosmetics and silks and all this kind of thing. Um, and the more the more of a delicatus the slave boy is, the more valuable he is. Uh, and Nero is just pushing this trend to an absolute limit that no one will ever rival. Uh, and it's very, very, in that way, very Nero behaviour. I was going to say, and I, I think people will have to read the book to see the way you um, manfully explain manfully. Yeah, yeah, what we would see, you know, as... as you know, paedophilic behaviour or what have you yeah. today. Well, it is paedophilic behaviour. Um, and it's, I mean, to our way of thinking, it's entirely shocking. It's child abuse. It's involves slavery. Um, it's shocking by our standards. But you can acknowledge the shock that you feel as, a, as, as someone in the 21st century. But that, of course, provokes the question well why do i feel this sense of shock where has this sense of shock come from where has the process of cultural dislocation happened because clearly to the romans it was more than acceptable and why do you think vitellius thinks people will enjoy that spectacle because it's the job of caesar to entertain the people with edifying spectacles and vitellius although he had been a friend of nero's um is concerned, I think, to to market himself as a, as a rough, tough, bluff military man, because he's 
very much a person of size. And I think he wants to market him, his size as being military bulk rather than a kind of epicene folds of fat, which is in the long run how he'll come to be interpreted. And I think that um, by by having this eunuch who had gone to bed with Otho, who he has displaced, saying, no, you know, this is, this is grotesque behaviour. This, you know, this is a grotesque who is stained by the attentions of all the men who have gone before. And it's disgusting that Otho would have slept with someone who'd also slept with a Praetorian and Nero. Um, he is ca- trying to cast himself as a kind of arbiter of morality. And, you know, the Romans obviously didn't think that inflicting atrocities on people in the arena was in any way immoral. Quite the contrary. They thought it was very moral. And they tended to have the assumption that the spectacles that were staged in the in the arena were an illustration of how the Romans were absolutely the most moral people on the face of the earth. And unless you get that... You don't. You can't possibly begin to see the world through Roman eyes and understand the world that they're inhabiting. Absolutely. Well, I. You know, this is why I encourage people to read the book because it's it's peeling back layers or putting layers back on, perhaps. Yeah, um, I think. Well, yes, yeah. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, listeners will be um, pretty familiar with the the outline of the narrative, um, the year of the four emperors, the rise of Vespasian. Um, Followed by, after his dynasty, the, the so-called five good emperors um, taking power. This is obviously Pax. This is the golden age of the Roman Empire, um, as Edward Gibbon has framed it. And we might think that the Romans of this period would be saying things um, like it was 1990. This is the end of history. This is, you know, an empire on which the sun will never set. But actually, throughout the book, you sense anxiety fear a lot of worry about this situation from roman thinkers well in the year of the four emperors uh there is fighting on the streets of rome vitellius ultimately is toppled by the troops of vespasian vespasian's dynasty the flavian so flavian troops uh, and he ends up sliced to pieces on the um the gemonian steps um and the spectacle of this year when the peace that people assumed had been secured by the divine augustus um you know dissolved away and it seemed like provinces would collapse and crumble away and the entire order of the roman world melt away and since the 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 order of the roman world had been blessed by the gods it suggested that the gods were angry with the whole of humanity and who knew what would happen um these are, are very vivid fears that people across the empire feel. Um, and the great spectacle of reconstruction is something that Vespasian takes incredibly seriously. But there are markers that particularly um, buffet the Roman world in the wake of Vespasian's death in 79. Uh, so in the, the, the rule of his elder son, Titus, that seem palpably to signal the anger of the gods. So the the holiest building in Rome, the Temple of Jupiter on the Capitol, burns down for the second time in a decade. Um, there's a terrible plague. And of course, most notoriously, there's the eruption of Vesuvius. 
and Vesuvius entombs the cities of Pompeii and Herculaneum, which means that the funeral rites can't be performed for all the dead in those two cities. So those go- their ghosts have to be assumed to be wandering the Bay of Naples. The, uh, the, 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 the ash that is spewed out by Vesuvius, you know, it, it, it lingers long in the air, causing weird uh, celestial phenomena, um, strange sunsets as far as Syria. So it absolutely seems like the gods are are angry with the Roman people. And a religio to, 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 to a Roman, I mean, it, it's, it's, from, it's, it's the Latin word from which our word religion derives, but it should not absolutely not be translated as religion. A religio is a bond that joins humanity to the gods, and it's a kind of obligation that is paid, so whether it's a priesthood or a festival or a, some form of celebration... And it's a kind of down payment. It's a kind of insurance. So if things are going wrong, you know that you haven't, you know, your, your, your insurance is running down and you need to start reestablishing those religiones. And I think that that is what Titus is doing with the Colosseum. I think that the, the inauguration of the Colosseum is uh, an attempt to offer up morally edifying lessons to the Roman people who are now... So the Colosseum should be understood as a great census in stone, um, an ordering of the Roman people as they should be properly ordered, but also uh, something that will be pleasing to the gods. Um, but the person who really takes this mission on board, I think, is Titus's younger brother, Domitian, who succeeds and Titus dies very after a very short reign. And Domitian is, he has a terrible reputation. He was clearly a very charmless man. He is the first emperor to unapologetically refer to himself as Dominus, Lord, Master, which was a title that Augustus had very pointedly refused. But Domitian embraces it. And I think he embraces it because he feels that that's exactly what it is, that he has been entrusted by the gods with the great mission of restoring the Roman people to their favour. And he does it in all kinds of ways. So he he uh, attempts to stabilize the currency he uh, attempts to stabilize the frontier he attempts to reform morals he is uh, micromanaging every expression of obligation to the gods and he feels that i think he is the the the, the deputy of the heavens and you know this is a, a podcast about byzantium not about um pre-christian rome but i do the the thing i the thing that domitian reminds me of is a particularly autocratic christian emperor uh an emperor who has the utmost conviction that he isn't he is responsible to the heavens for the moral guidance of the roman world but of course domitian domitian lacks the um the the, the theological heft that christianity will come to provide the uh the byzantine emperors um, and the irony, of course, is that he is remembered by Christians as a man who actually martyrs Christians, who launches a persecution, even though I think he, I don't think he does. Um, but that sense that the la- the the, the labouring that an emperor has to undertake, the tireless work of communicating uh, his his 
ambitions for the empire to all the many apparatchiks who are scattered across the empire. I mean, an enormous labour. I think Domitian absolutely sees this as a kind of divinely appointed task. Mm. That's why I I particularly enjoyed that change of perspective. Um, Again, we tend to see, you know, Roman emperors as, as dictators, as you know, power hungry as oh, we've got this vast empire now we can live high on the hog and the arena is is bread and circus it's just there to keep the people ha- you know it's all it's a very modern way of yeah, looking it at it and yeah. I think you bring out the idea that actually you might go I'm I'm in charge of the known world that's a great responsibility Not, well it clearly is and yeah. you can see this through through uh, Trajan's letters to Pliny uh, very uh, effectively that Pliny is out um, you know, and he's having to go sort out drains and dodgy aqueducts and all kinds of things. And he's endlessly writing to Trajan. And Trajan's writing back to him kind of great patience, telling him what he should do. And Trajan is is remembered by the Romans as the best of emperors because he's a great conqueror. But clearly he's not spending all his time conquering. He's spending a lot of his time answering inquiries from provincial, from, from governors out in obscure provinces. I mean, I think that... There is a lot of uh, blotter dotting that an emperor has to do. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so another area where I feel you offer a corrective to the sort of Wikipedia narrative that's out there is um, with the Judean revolts, or as I think people would say, the Jewish revolts. Right. So I, so I, <laughs> it's difficult because in English we have both words, Jewish and Judean. Um, one of them, of course, is associated with the Roman province of Judea, and one of them isn't. One of them is a word that can be impli- can be applied to uh, the descendants of the Judeans right the way up to the present day. And I think that the word Jew in English has the wrong significations. Um, it conjures up images of, of certainly of rabbinical Judaism, which is simply not around at this point because the focus of Judean um, cultic practice is focused on the temple and the temple is destroyed by Titus. I mean, this is the, the, the key development which sets Judeans on the path to becoming, if you like, Jews and sets the cultic practices of the Judeans towards the, the, the road where they can come to be called in the second century by Christians, Judaism. And all, I mean, again, this is, this is a very Christian word. So, so again, there's the threat of importing Christian as well as, as kind of modern prejudices. Um, but I, I think that if you call them Judeans, then they come to seem less, less strange in the context of the Romans. Cause I think we very much have a sense that, the, Jew, the, the Jews were destined to engage in a kind of religious war with the polytheistic Romans, that there was something unique about the Jews that made them unable to endure rule by idol worshippers. But this isn't true at all. The Judeans have been subject to um, pagan empires for centuries and centuries. The Romans, the Greeks, the Persians, they've all done it. And sure, you know, there's the Maccabean revolt, but that's the exception that proves the rule. For most of this period, the Judeans have knuckled down, they've paid their taxes, they have, um, they've flourished, and they've flourished under Rome. The Judeans are greeted with great favour by the Roman provincial authorities. The Romans side with the, uh, the Judeans, by and large, against 
the Samaritans, for instance, um, uh, against other peoples who who are the, the neighbours of the Judeans. And the Judeans have, uh, a, they have a, a cultic temple, they have a metropolis, they have a homeland, just like every other people. And although, of course, the Romans do find the Judeans weird, they have this single god, they don't have, you know, statues in their temples all this kind of thing i mean they do find them weird but they find everybody weird this is the whole point um romans are absolutely convinced that they have the proper understanding of religio that their bonds with the gods are the only effective ones and the proof of that is that they're the masters of the world and everyone else is odd so the judeans you know only worship one god but the egyptians worship gods with animal heads um, the Britons are busy sacrificing people in bogs and oak glades and Syrians are castrating themselves and roaming around dressing up as women. I mean, very, very weird behavior by Roman standards. But they're, you know, whatever. As long as they pay their taxes, they can do what they like. And really what triggers the Judean revolt is the fact that Judeans don't want to pay their taxes because they're being royally screwed by Nero, who wants to fund the rebuilding of Rome after the Great Fire. And there's a cascade effect of contingent accidents and episodes that sees a, a kind of tax revolt get out of hand, um, a Roman garrison massacred, a legion destroyed. And the further the Judeans go into revolt, the more devastating they know the reprisals are going to be. And the more they think, well, we might as well just, you know, <laughs> just carry on and hope that God is on our side. Uh, and, you know, if there are if there are echoes of events in in the, the Middle East at the moment in that, um, well, it's a reminder of the the way in which the 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 events of the first Judean revolt and then again a second re, a second revolt under Hadrian do, of course, have cataclysmic long term consequences. Um, for the condition of the, the Middle East today, because um, it's it's Titus who destroys Jerusalem, wipes out the temple, uh, but it's Hadrian who um, there's a, there's a the Judeans rise in revolt again. It's it's incredibly brutal war, and it's Hadrian who erases the very name of Judea from the map and and calls it Palestina, Palestine. And so there's sort of been three revolt during this period you're covering and so by the end of it judean communities are sort of scattered and the, their homeland is sort of scourged at the same time you detect hadrian beginning a search for some kind of unifying deity well i i i, I mean I, hadrian for the flavians Vespasian and Titus never let anyone forget about their success in suppressing the Judean revolt. And they cast it not as a revolt, but as a conquest. I mean, absolutely shameless propaganda, because of course, everyone knows that Judea was, 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 a, was a province in rebellion rather than a kingdom that is being conquered. But Vespasian and Titus have to say that because they want to celebrate a triumph. And you can't celebrate a triumph if, um, if you're simply pacifying a, a rebellion. And so they just go on and on about it. They, they pretend that the Colosseum is being funded by loot taken from Jerusalem, whereas in fact it's being paid for by Greek taxes. Um, and they're endlessly issuing coins, boasting about their, their conquest of Judea. Um, 
with Hadrian, it's I think it's it's palpably different because um, he he sees himself as both the man who who keeps unwanted beggars from the great garden of the world. So hence Hadrian's Wall, hence you know wooden palisades and dirt ramparts that are built in other corners of of the empire. But he also sees himself as responsible for. Uh, tending uh, the, the 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 great garden that that he as Caesar is ruling, and so the Judean revolt, I think he does see as a kind of failure. You know, he's taken by surprise. There'd been this low level grumbling, this insurgency um, that had broken out under under Trajan into open warfare. Hadrian had pacified it, and there were definitely Judean leaders who thought that he might well um, give them give them the temple back and give them Jerusalem back. Hadrian chooses not to do that. And this then precipitates a kind of despairing, desperate rebellion again that involves deliberate, self-conscious atrocities against Roman rule, which then, of course, just incites the Romans to be even more brutal in their response. And, um, and by the end of it, the very name of Judea has been wiped out. Um, now, the Romans... I think, assume that the Judeans will go the way, say, of the Carthaginians. The Carthaginian, you know, Carthage likewise had been wiped from the face of the earth. Carthaginian cultic practices had been shown no respect whatsoever. Um, and although, of course, people continue to speak Punic in North Africa, a, a Carthaginian identity such as Hamilcar and Hannibal had known it is indeed erased. And I think the Romans assume that this is what will happen with the Judeans. Of course, it doesn't. And this is what makes the Judeans in the long run so distinctive is that they have an alternative focus for their identity to the temple and to Jerusalem, which is the scriptures. And so this is where you, the, the, the rabbis, the teachers uh, are able to to re-consecrate Torah and the practice of studying um, scripture as an alternative focus of, of piety. And they're able to do that because there are teachers in Babylon who are beyond the reach of Rome, and, but also because there are teachers and Jewish settlements in Galilee, which under Hadrian does not rise in rebellion. So the Romans leave them. And so it's it's in Galilee that... It's in Galilee and Babylon that you have the progress towards what will become the Talmud, which is, is defining for um, for Judaism as it will emerge over the course of late antiquity. And is there, am I mistaken, is there any connection to Christianity there then ending up becoming the Roman religion? Because um, I know there are sort of threads that Judeans spreading out across the empire some are drawn to christianity because it sort of has this connection to well people the the romans there are lots of romans who are drawn to uh, judean teachings mm. um and i think you can see why because um the the god of the judeans is a, a god for a universal human order because he has created all of humanity in his own image. And so that endows people who come to believe in this God with, with, with a dignity that they wouldn't otherwise have. Um, 
and Papaya Sabina herself is celebrated um, as 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 a, a someone who admires and respects the Judean God, and we know this from Josephus, who who reports it. You know, he had dealings with her when he came to Rome before the Great Rebellion. Um, but obviously, there, there, there there's a problem, particularly if you're a man, a Roman man, and you want to identify with um, with Judean practice which is that it involves circumcision. And there are lots of people who don't want to do that. Um, but Christianity kind of offers a shortcut. You can have the Judean scriptures and the universal God without having to be circumcised. And I think that what happens over the course of um, the second and third centuries, particularly after the, the, the Judean rebellions, is that... Um, if you like, the the Judeans, the Jews, become the heirs of the notion that the God of Israel is specifically the God of Israel, whereas the Christians become the heir of the idea that the God of Israel is also the God who has created every man and woman. And that is the process ultimately of bifurcation. But the key thing is that they are basically siblings. You know, they are Esau and Jacob, Romulus and Remus. I mean, this is how both, this is how they're often compared in late antiquity. In the long run, the idea comes to be embedded that uh, Judaism is the mother and Christianity is the daughter. But that's flattering to the conceit of both because it enables Jews to cast them their, the, themselves as the primal, original way of understanding god and christians as kind of aberrant whereas it enables christians to cast themselves as you know the the guardians of a new covenant um that they have superseded the 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 jewish way of doing things so it's very flattering to both but it's not true i mean they are they are siblings Mm, absolutely and i the book ends with hadrian's death um and some people might think pax why not go on into Antoninus Pius and Marcus Aurelius and so on but I think you sort of um, identify in Hadrian the sort of the glint in the eye of of what will become Byzantium that the world will become Roman rather than yeah these provincial differences well it's partly it's partly because I I'm trying to do it in the kind of the lifespan a human lifespan uh, a cyclum yes um, so you know someone someone born in Nero's reign would could live to see the death of Nero, the death of Hadrian. Yes. Um, it's it's also because um, I want to keep stuff for the next book. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so I didn't want to use it all up. Yes. Um, but you're right. I, I I mean I think that Nero and Hadrian are very complementary figures. You know, you ha- you have Judean revolts in the the reigns of both, and both of course are obsessed by Greece, um, and Hadrian does this much more successfully than Nero. Nero pushes things too far. He kind of poses as a tragic hero. Uh, he, um, he, he, he gives total tax freedom, tax exemption to the Greeks, which just annoys everybody else. Um, and his relationship to Greece is something that definitely precipitates the rebellion because it's while he is away in Greece, kind of touring the festivals and racing the Olympic Games, that the rebellions start that in the long run will, will topple him. Hadrian is much, much more successful at this because he uh, institutes a kind of Hellenic equivalent of the European Union centred on Athens, 
but he also very much favours Sparta. And it's this idea that Athens and Sparta and other ancient rivals can be reconciled into a single Panhellenion, a, a, you know, a, a Hellenic Union. Um, and that the existence of this Hellenic Union will therefore redound to the greater glory of Rome and of Hadrian, because he's the guy who's achieved it. Um, and I think that this is obviously a development that that is pregnant with significance <laughs> for the future, as you know. Um, your listeners of all people will appreciate that the Romans will become the Romeoi, that they will be, they will still think of themselves as Roman, but they will think of themselves as Roman in Greek. And in the, under Hadrian, you can see the kind of acorn from which this will grow. Absolutely. Fantastic. Let me ask you two non-PAX questions uh, before we wrap up. Um, some listeners, maybe one or two, may not realize you have your own podcast now. The Rest is History, which you co-host with Dominic Sandbrook. Um, we could have talked about that for 40 minutes as well, but why don't you uh, just tease the listeners with one topic you've covered on the show which surprised you with how enjoyable it was to to research and learn about? Uh, I think the, um, the Battle of Trafalgar, I, I had a massive animus against naval history because I know nothing about the terms and I'm very bored by... I, we always used to go, I grew up in Salisbury and so we always used to go on school trips to HMS Victory and I found it terminally dull. Um, I just thought rope, mizzens, masts, sails, whatever, I couldn't, couldn't care less. Um, and we reached the stage where I thought we really should do something Napoleonic. We hadn't done anything Napoleonic and the anniversary of Trafalgar was coming up and I thought we could just do a bat. I mean, how hard can it be? Just tell the story of a battle. And I... I had two weeks off and the, it was meant to be a holiday from reading up of sub, on subjects for the podcast. And I read, a, I read a, a book on Trafalgar and found it utterly gripping. And I then became completely obsessed and read nothing about, not, did nothing all holiday except read up about the deep history of the Royal Navy. Um, and I found it fascinating because, partly because of the, the, the battle itself is an extraordinary, I mean, I, I to understand why it is, why Nelson's tactics are so stunning is it's really eye-opening. Uh, Nelson himself is such a fascinating character. But ultimately, I think I've, I found it eye-opening because Nelson's victory at Trafalgar is rooted in decades and indeed a century and a half of um, initiate, uh, British initiatives that essentially are in the words of one historian, creating 19th century islands in an 18th century sea with the naval dockyards, that these are incubators of the Industrial Revolution, that um, frameworks for resupplying ships are being developed in the 1790s that will last right the way up to the Falklands War. I mean, this is incredible. Uh, and simultaneously, that to be on a, on a Royal Navy ship, it, it's probably the healthiest place on the whole planet because people are so concerned not to, that the, the crew don't succumb to disease, that they're pushing initiatives in public health that will, in the 19th century, applied to, to, to cities, lead to the great revolution of which we're the beneficiaries in the 20th and 21st centuries. So the sense that 
Trafalgar is a battle in which the future is being displayed. I found absolutely eye-opening and thrilling. Mm. And I, I, not a naval history person, but your description of the battle was absolutely visceral. So that's incredible. Yeah, <laughs> I mean the thing, you know, because the thing is that normally, in in, in a, a, a kind of Napoleonic era battle, and, and long before, ships just line up and kind of fire at each other, uh, and and that's it, pretty much. Nelson's strategy is that you have two prongs with a, a ship at the tip of each prong, one of which is his ship, Victory, and the other one is commanded by Admiral Collingwood, who has a dog called Bounce. Geordie, who goes around planting oaks when he's not commanding ships. Tremendous man. Um, and these guys, are, you know, the ships are getting absolutely pulverised and the officers have to stand on the deck and they're not allowed to duck. I mean, it just, I cannot contemplate the courage that would be required to do that. And Nelson's standing there and a cannonball screams past and, you know, there's just a pair of legs from the guy he's talking to and they kind of slowly keel over. You know, the top half has just vanished in a kind of great smear of blood and gunpowder. I mean, it's just astonishing, jaw-dropping stuff. Do check out The Rest is History for more audio. Final question, just for me. Should England have batted more sensibly in the first Ashes test with Australia, or am I a dinosaur who hasn't had my conversion to baseball yet? Uh, no, I think that uh, baseball is tremendous. I'm all in favour of it. It, uh, I mean, this will mean nothing to people who know nothing about cricket. Uh, but I think Stokes's declaration, while tactically wrong, was strategically correct. Brilliant. Pax, War and Peace in Rome's Golden Age is out now in the US and the UK and beyond, I'm sure, in all good bookshops. Check out The Rest is History. Do read Dominion. Tom Holland, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Just a reminder that if you'd like to listen to Pax or any of Tom's other books, why not sign up at audibletrial.com forward slash Byzantium. That will get you the book for free, along with a month-long trial of Audible's service. If you don't like it, you don't need to stay subscribed, and you can still listen to the book you chose.